Today's webinar moderator is Steve Woodruff. Steve is an agronomist here at the East National Technology Support Center. And with that, Steve, I'm going to turn the webinar over to you so you can introduce the topic and our presenter. Thanks, Holly. Uh, I uh, appreciate everyone being on today. I think you're really going to enjoy this webinar we, we've got for you today. Um, as all of you know and are aware of, uh, soil health has been elevated uh, over the last few years, and it's it's a hot topic for every, everyone. And um, it's now moved not just from cropland but over to other land uses, including grazing lands and including gr perennial grazing lands. And so we are excited today to have Dr. Matt Poor uh, on to talk about some of the work that, that he and his group has done in the past and are continuing to do now uh, in the area of soil health and grazing systems. Um, I, I'm so happy that Matt could do this. I've known Matt for probably eight or ten years, and he and his group um, at the Animal Science Department at North Carolina State University have been such good partners with uh, NRCS and we work together on a lot of projects, and, and I'm just really pleased that he's able to help us out here today. So with that, Matt, I'm going to turn uh, this over to you, and you're going to talk a little bit about forage grazing systems and using annuals uh, to improve soil health and, and improve livestock. So Matt? Okay, thank you, Steve, and, and um, uh, welcome to everybody that's involved in this today, and, and I think Steve is going to is going to monitor for some questions, and we'll stop um, at least one place through the talk and, and take some questions. So really uh, want to move right into this. I'm, I'm going to show you uh, so quite a bit of experience um, items that we've had over the last number of years. I'm going to show you just a very little bit of data. This is, uh, this is an area, as you well know, that it's, it's hard to pull a single piece of data that says much about soil health and some of these systems. So not going to spend a lot of time on that, but talk to you rather about a lot of the educational activities and other stuff that we have going on. Again, just to uh, introduce myself a little bit more detail, um, Matt Poor. I am an extension beef specialist. I work for North Carolina Cooperative Extension. Uh, my primary role is to support extension agents and train them, uh, but also do quite a bit of interagency training and, uh, and work directly with producers as well. Uh, and I'm housed in the Department of Animal Science at, at NC State University. Uh, that's me in the green shirt, and you'll see me in a few of these slides. But um, I could have put a formal office-type slide in here, a picture of me, but uh, I'd rather have you think of me like I'm seen in this particular picture and uh, kind of sums up a lot about what I do right now and, and what, uh, what I enjoy. Now, just to back up a little bit and give you some historical perspective on why I'm interested in this area so much, is that I am from uh, the area up north of Raleigh, North Carolina, right on the Virginia border. Actually, this piece of property is in Virginia, and this is one of the, uh, the beautiful views that, that I have the privilege of, of being part of most every weekend. And uh, this is my parents' farm. When I went back to the farm and started helping when I took this job here in North Carolina, uh, it looked like the top panel of this picture. Uh, that essentially was what the land looked like, and, and this was one of the, maybe one of the rougher places, but you can see the uh, very low quality species, very low fertility, low level of management, and very typical of a lot of the, uh, of the Piedmont uh, areas that don't have poultry and, and a lot of nutrients. 
And so we're in that situation. And, and I just note, uh, if, if you look at this picture, look at some of the trees up here on the top of this ridge. And then drop down, this second photo is after about 12 years of, of doing a little bit of fertility improvement on this land, but not very much. Uh, you, you can't afford uh, to do much fertility improvement here, but it did need some lime and some phosphorus. But this is after about 12 years, some, some low-level uh, fertility inputs, and then rotational grazing management. And again, in the top panel, that was continuous grazing. Uh, the cows, they run about 100 cows here, and it would, they would break into three or four groups and just kind of spread out. And uh, the bottom is after putting them through, uh, you know, not really intensive mob grazing or anything like that, but just good rotational grazing, two or three days stay, and then move on uh, for a long period of time. And, and basically the story here, these are different seasons and all of that, but uh, nevertheless, the land does respond, and this really poor quality land uh, can be quite productive agricultural land if we if we look at and see the potential there. Uh, unfortunately, most people look at that top kind of a picture and say, well, there's just nothing there to work with. It's all rock. There's not much soil. But uh, this kind of land will grow grass very, very well uh, if you do have improvements in soil health and water infiltration and some of those things that go along with, uh, with some of the practices we're talking about. Now, another experience that it kind of shaped me and, and uh, uh, convinced me to get more involved in, in this area uh, starting about 15 years ago was a day I, I returned to the farm uh, after being out on the road during the winter meeting season. And I walked back to where the cows were. And this, uh, this view up here in the upper, uh, in the upper part of, of, this, uh, of, this slide, of this slide, upper left-hand corner, is uh, what I found where the cows were. And essentially, that's a small creek, was the water source for those cows, very eroded, very polluted, and really was kind of a wake-up call for me that you know, here I am out talking to people about conservation, and this is what it looks like in my backyard. So we, uh, you know, we did what a lot of producers have done. We decided to do something about it, and we went ahead and installed water, uh, fenced out that creek. And so if you drop down uh, you know, this is the type, just gravity feed, very simple water we put in that particular area. And then we fenced out with a single strand of polywire. It doesn't show very good on this, uh, on this slide, but you see a little white line here, and that's not an imperfection in the photo. That's actually a single strand of polywire. And within two years of protecting that little creek, it started to heal up. As we know, uh, uh, this, this kind of land has the, a great ability to, re to recover. And then I went back uh, 12 years later, this was last winter, I went to that same spot, tried to get myself lined up uh, as closely as I could. And this is what that spot looks like now. And I think you can see more clearly in this one the little single strand of polywire. Now, this is not something that we recommend to people to do. But uh, it's amazing what you can do with temporary fencing. And I'll talk about that as we get into it. But uh, these kinds of projects don't have to be extremely expensive. This was a Virginia cost share program. Uh, and they didn't require uh, the fence out of the creek at that time, and, and we did it anyway with that polywire. And, and uh, you know, it's been it's been a really good experience to see that improvement on my own farm. So, uh, as Steve said, you know, the soil health thing has gotten to be really popular the last few years. A lot of debate about what it is, how we measure it, um, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on that. All of you know a lot more about that than I do, probably. And uh, we're just getting into uh, some early measurements on this, trying to figure out what we can do. But it's easy to say that many pastures 
throughout the world are overgrazed, and certainly the U.S. is no um, is not any different. We have a lot of our pastures here in North Carolina are overgrazed, and uh, even in times when we have plenty of rainfall, you'll see you know pastures that are just severely uh, overgrazed. So. So we know that this overgrazing causes problems with uh, runoff of, of rainfall, and it takes nutrients with it, of course, and then also, you know, really reduces our potential productivity and the stand life of our forages and all of those kinds of things. So um, we also know on the flip side that a well-managed pasture can really be beneficial because of good rainfall in infiltration, good water cycle uh, benefits, and also uh, the uh, you know the improvement in the cycling of nutrients and and how productive these systems are. So uh, we're you know it's no it's no mystery that people are interested in this simply because we've got more and more people out there saying hey I'm not using near the fertilizer I used to use um, my kit, my animals are doing well and with animal prices high right now uh, those savings that people think they you know see that they could achieve uh, are are result in some real serious uh, profit for them or improved return. So I think that's why we have so much interest in this area uh, at the current time. Now, I, I kind of hunt through my slide set, tried to find a good cattle um, pasture that was overgrazed because that is the area that I work with. And, and uh, this I came across this one, and I guess I just uh, decided to use it. But certainly, um, you know, this type of situation on, on land that's got a little bit of slope to it is not, is not a good thing. I think we all know that. Uh, all of the problems associated with this are pretty easy to identify, and yet a lot of our landowners just don't see it. They don't. They 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 say this is a pasture, and they call and say, "What species can I plant?" Because obviously this one's not doing well. But they just don't. Uh, you know, they, they they don't have a concept for what is possible. So, uh, you know, we 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 can show a lot of data, and I, I'm going to show a few little data slides here. This is. Uh, from some work that we did here with Dave Butler back in the mid-2000s. And um, Dr. Jim Green was involved in this work, and you, you all probably know him or, or have known him in the past. And what we did was we had plots that were, uh, that were either managed to have low, medium, or high forage cover, uh, as you can see in this particular bar graph. And then we had other plots that were bare, compacted uh, land. And this was all on, in a riparian area. We used rainfall simulation to, to determine this, and without telling you a lot of a lot of detail about the study, basically having some ground cover uh, in those areas really reduced our overall uh, runoff of, of water in, in this particular slide, and then uh, similar effects for the nutrients as well. And so we you know we know that these these really badly managed situations, very you know bare bare ground near the creek, is basically a really bad thing. Um, now, um, we'll, uh, we had this little thing happen here earlier. I think it'll come right back. Okay. Thanks, Holly. So the point being, you know, we can have some problems with poorly managed situations, but we can also remedy that by, by keeping some ground cover out there. Now, partially um, combined with that, we, in 2007, we had a terrible drought here in North Carolina. Uh, and that resulted in a group of agencies working together to come up with some, uh, some cost share money to help producers replant pasture. And as part of this process, uh, pretty much everybody at the table recognized 
that this overgrazing of pastures during that drought was what resulted in the death of the pastures. It was, uh, you know, places where people managed and used a sacrifice area, as we would recommend, had, uh, you know, had good, had, had survived, their pastures survived. People that just kept grazing them, the pastures died, and the rec it was recognized that if we went into that same management uh, and planted new pastures the next drought, they would just die again. So we, um, we went ahead and, and again, I'll wait for this to come back on. But we went ahead and, and started to expand our educational program uh, with some funding from those groups at that time. That was very, very beneficial uh, that we were able to do that. Actually, our Tobacco Trust Fund uh, funded that work. And we started into uh, uh, an educational program to get people to think about uh, what their pastures are. And basically, we expanded a program we've had for a while called Amazing Grazing. I tell you just a little bit about that, but that's something that has caught people's uh, uh, attention and, and their their imagination on this. Uh, and basically, amazing grazing is this overall educational program where we are striving to improve our our pasture management and profitability uh, through a better understanding of pasture ecology. So the idea of this program is to get not only the advisors but also the producers, the landowners, to to think a little bit more about the system as an ecological uh, system out there as opposed to just not understanding what's going on. So we have a lot of training for extension agents, uh, conservationists, both NRCS and our soil and water folks, and uh, veterinarians as well as, as other industry consultants. And we, that's a continuously ongoing program. We also have quite a bit of training for producers through publications. Uh, you know, hands-on workshops, demonstrations, and applied research that we do. And I'll especially be, uh, be talking about some of the demonstrations that we've done as we go on uh, into the, the rest of the presentation. Now, while we, we get this question a lot because we have farmers that, that go to a farm that's been doing uh, good management for a long period of time, and uh, it's just, it's really, a great situation, you know. They they hear about well, I don't use much fertilizer, this and that. All things look really good, but it's hard for them to see how they might get there from where they're at on their farm. And so we need to get them thinking about how complex the pasture is. Uh, we need to get them thinking about their animals and their plants both at the same time and how they grow and interact together. And then we also really need to work with them to make them understand that they can have a good system that maybe doesn't include mob grazing or, you know, that they can move cattle, uh, you know, once a week or twice a week and have a very good system. So we, we just need to get away from the cookie cutter type approach and, uh, and get them to, uh, to think about their system as unique and get excited about Im implementing some aspect of what we're talking about at home and then try to develop their system. So that's kind of the logic and the, the approach we take uh, with, our, um, with our program. A few little, I, I just throw a few little uh, uh, tidbits in here about some of the things that we look at and talk about, but things like dung beetles are really interesting to people. They don't know much about them, and, and it's something that you can hold their attention for a long time with that. Of course, uh, uh, you know, we've adopted Ray Archuleta's uh, philosophy of carrying a shovel with us to pasture and getting people to think about what's going on below the surface. And 
uh, you know, looking at earthworms and, and, and aggregate stability and some of those sorts of things. And really, people are very, very interested in, uh, in taking these, uh, these types of, of opportunities and learning about these systems. Now, as we, um, as we got into that situation after the drought was over and we started working with farmers, we recognized that the wintertime is probably the ideal time to capture their interest and get them doing things out there on the land because this particular photo here shows what they have to deal with. Uh, they, they do deal with situations um, just like this in this picture with a lot of mud, a lot of heavy impact on the land. And they recognize if I could not have to do this, I'd be a lot better off. And so we have done a lot of work for the last, uh, I guess we spent three years uh, during uh, 2011, 12, and 13 doing wintertime work. Um, we had, uh, uh, we, we used this kind of information uh, quite a lot in that kind of, uh, uh, of, of an educational program associated with our winter feeding where we show folks uh, you know, how their impact out there on the land looks. This is a phosphorus map of our farm down in Goldsboro, our research farm. And I'll just, uh, uh, just one of the things that we try to point out to people is that this, uh, the colors on here are the phosphorus uh, indexes with the oranges uh, being low phosphorus index. And once you get to green and blue, you're very high. And so, for example, in this pasture here, uh, you can see that this uh, precision fertility map shows the way that this is heavily loaded in the corner near the gate uh, where historically hay was fed. And then farther out, uh, there's a lot less of that, uh, and that's an indication of how much uh, uh, manure has been deposited here by those cows. So, uh, you know, if we can get people thinking about this nutrient picture and thinking about their winter activity, relatively easy to get them to think about going out and, and doing better management. Now, again, um, a little bit of data here. This is from a, a study uh, by, um, uh, lost the, uh, the, the caption there that shows where this was from, but this is from Owens and Shapitalo, a publication that came out in 2009. Uh, and uh, this particular data is from 1974 to 1986. But in this study, what they did was uh, they, they looked at two systems. One system uh, that is the, uh, I believe the, uh, the, the, the two pastures here, WS-106 and WS-121. Those were in a high fertility system that involved eight paddocks, uh, four of which were hayed uh, during the summer and then grazed during the fall. And then that hay was fed back on those pastures during the winter. So that's those two. And then the top one, uh, WS-129, was a lower fertility system, but it was only a four-paddock system, and hay, purchased hay was fed on one of the paddocks during the wintertime. And so they're just comparing two systems. It's a historical, uh, it's a retrospective look at some of the work that they did over the years. But as this shows, uh, the sediment loss, uh, and this is the total for the time period for each month, during the winter is very high in that, that, uh, that low fertility, low management system where the animals were concentrated for winter feeding, a very high loss of, of sediment during April, uh, some uh, obviously during, during March and May, and basically ground cover in that feeding pasture decreased to about 50% during, uh, during that winter period. And so uh, obviously, a big difference between that, um, that concentrated winter feeding 
and the, and the more uh, rotational winter feeding and, and, and winter grazing. So, uh, you know, pretty dramatic difference here. Uh, a point that they make on all of these, uh, these pastures and all of this data, this was still below T. And so, we, you know, we need to kind of take a different attitude about grazing systems, I think. And, you know, I, I just think we should have very, very little erosion at all. And, and uh, you know, that's just my opinion. But nevertheless, um, you know, they point out that, that even though with this amount of erosion, it still is not, uh, it still doesn't meet that, quote, tolerance for the soil type. But uh, we can debate that maybe more. Nevertheless, um, working with that kind of data and working with farmers and, and showing them that you can actually get out there and graze cows and have good nutrient distribution, grow grass with that nutrient the next spring, has uh, gotten people very interested. This is a picture uh, from our farm in Virginia. Uh, the next picture is from a, a place that I was invited out to in Mineral County, West Virginia, a couple of winters ago when I went up there and talked to them about this very concept. And uh, it seems like wherever I go, I, there's a few people that come up and say, hey, this is, we're doing it, and this really works. And so that excites me and, and makes me continue to be interested in it. A uh, lot of challenges out there with a lot of folks, as I'm sure uh, most of you know. But, uh, but certainly there are people that are, that are starting to see the potential for this kind of management out there. This, uh, you know, th this kind of brings us back to where we're at in terms of our educational programs. This is one of our workshops out on the farm. Uh, the gentleman standing here in the orange shirt is Mike Jones, and he's a farmer that's probably amongst about 25 that we have worked with over the last few years to develop a network of folks that are not afraid to try some new things. He's got all kinds of things that, uh, that he's tried. He's got native warm season grasses. He's doing some annuals. He's stockpiling fescue. And this obviously is a stockpiled fescue situation where he was helping us to um, you know, to teach his neighbors, basically, and other folks that came how he's able to graze through the winter, uh, very little fertilizer, and, uh, and control cows and not have to feed hay. So um, very, uh, you know, very productive and very timely. Now, with this, I think I'm going to stop and ask for questions. Steve, I'm about halfway through probably. Um, do you, I, and I cannot see the question list right now, so do you have any that have come up? Well, uh, one specifically is on uh, your farm where you fenced off the the stream and it uh, healed itself after that. Do you go back in and flash graze those? Uh, do you go back in and flash graze those areas ever, or you just kind of leave them natural? Uh, what do you do on those? Okay, that's a good question, Steve. And that I think that that um, you know that's all probably pretty ter terrain driven. As I said, that that particular stream I was showing, we don't have any contract that says we can't have cattle graze that. But we, you know, I've, I've made that about a, maybe a 10 to 15 foot buffer um, outside of the really wet area where I know they really sink up and do a lot of damage. And so we have not flash grazed that at all. Uh, I, I'll, I'll, I guess I'll um, caveat that a little bit by saying that that is single strand, 30 inch high poly wire and calves will go in there some. But we've, we've not really made an attempt to flash graze that because it was so degraded. And we might do that in the future. It is starting to grow up in trees now. And, and uh, you know, that's kind of the inevitable progression there. And, and I'm not sure exactly how to manage around that. But, but no, that one has not been flash grazed at this point. Okay. Uh, also, uh, and you might get to this more later, uh, compaction issues. Do you think improving soil health uh, 
doing doing practices that improve soil health will be adequate to alleviate those compaction problems, or do you think you might have to have some kind of mechanical treatment uh, prior to implementing those soil health treatments, or or will the management of the the grass be enough? Okay, that's a that's an excellent question, Steve, and I think it's going to depend some on the on the type of of forage crop that you have there uh, and the type of land that you have. Again, a lot of the work that we've done in the Piedmont has been on land like you're looking at right here with Mike Jones. Um, really hard to get on there and do anything mechanical that might, um, you know, that might help things. Uh, you could do some aeration or something like that, but most of the aerator designs are just sort of do a little bit and not a lot. So I think the key the key here is to let the land rest long enough to where um, plants can can uh, you know exhibit their their rooting potential, if you will. Fescue in these soils can go uh, you know pretty deep, a couple feet at least with active roots, and uh, enough rest and time. Uh, and I think some of those issues can be can be healed up. Now this is very clay oriented type land. I mean it's clay type soils. In a lot of these farms, you get into silt and other things, then you can have some different problems. So, um, again, quite a bit of, uh, of soil differences there, I think, in what will work and what won't. But we'll talk about that a little as we go on. Okay, one more quick one, and then we'll, I know we've got to go move on. But uh, uh, hay, uh, using hay, have you ever measured kind of how much hay you lose uh, unrolling hay uh, like versus unrolling versus rotating hay rings, those kind of things? Have you done any kind of measurements on that? Yes, I, I've done I've done a little bit of, of that, but there is some published work with that from a couple of different groups, and uh, the the overall interpretation of that is that unrolling hay can be a really good way of of uh, distributing nutrients and 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 feeding cows. The limitations of it are when the soil is very very wet, um, you can have you know you can have a lot of loss of that, a lot of waste of that hay, and then also. Um, you, you have to worry a little bit about having the right size package of hay to go with the number of cattle that you have. So if you unroll hay and it's more than they need, then they'll waste it. And having, having being able to match exactly the size of your bales to the cows that you have is not as easy. I mean, it sounds easy, but it's not. Most folks that do it will, uh, will have some hay-free choice and then unroll less than they need so that they clean it up quickly. And that's really the key to it. So um, as I work with folks that are trying to put in an unrolling program, it's unroll less than they need in a day so that they'll clean it up and use as high a quality hay as you can. So again, they're going to be eager to eat it and, and wanting to eat it and clean it up. Okay, well, we've got a couple awesome. more, but let's, let's, let's keep going because I know you're going to get into some of the meat of, you know, your presentation. Probably 10% so. loss on unrolling yeah. hay. Uh, similar to a good round bale uh, trailer with offset bars and uh, can be as high as probably 15 to 20 percent if the conditions are wet. Again, the benefits of distributing nutrients are probably probably um, make that a, not a bad number. Oh. Okay, so <clears throat> let me I want to move into a little different tact and, and as Steve said, this is supposed to be about cover crops and I'm getting to that. but we have a, a terrible problem in the, the region of the country I'm in, and this is actually increasing in size. It's moving north, and that's the fescue um, issue. 
within the fescue belt, you know, we have an awful lot of livestock that experience fescue uh, toxicosis, and uh, it's really a, it's it's a serious problem. <clears throat> I don't know of anybody with fescue that doesn't have some problems with it. So to to deal with this toxic fescue, we have to think about several things. One, the main thing people have done is to shift to fall calving. Um, we know that that can work and, and can help to uh, alleviate some of the stress on these cows. They're, they're in cooler conditions when they're having to breed, uh, and so that can work. But when you have a winter like we had last winter with fall calving cows, poor quality hay, uh, it, it's, it, you know, it's not the greatest system. So, um, you know, that, that's what most people have done, but, but certainly we're kind of calving out of sync with nature in terms of our forage supply. We could shift to fertilization in late summer, and a lot of people have done this as well. So those that are fertilizing to get a stockpile for winter grazing may lay off the fertilizer in the spring. What that does is that increases the clover and also gives you a better balanced yield and helps you from having a whole lot of toxic fescue you have to try to eat up in June and July. So that's another option for people with all fescue pastures. Of course, a lot of people just pull out a feed bucket and and uh, know that if they feed 10 pounds of feed to a calf uh, after weaning, they'll grow a little bit even if they're grazing fescue. Uh, and then more of our, our uh, progressive producers are realizing that they need to add, um, uh, you know, a warm season uh, perennial, some kind of a, you know, perhaps Bermuda grass or a native uh, warm season grass, or that they need to add some non-toxic fescue, uh, Max-Q or... Baropto, Max-Q2, some of the others that are available as part of their system. And uh, we're really focused a lot on that right now with a lot of our work. And then some of our other, uh, other research is looking at, at uh, genetic resistance in cattle uh, to fescue, and that'll be kind of long-term, but definitely we're always going to have some toxic fescue on land that really just can't practically be renovated. And, uh, and so we'll have to have some heat, to some tolerance in our cattle uh, as well as one of the tools we have. But we're really focusing now on getting people to think about taking part of their land, uh, looking at their forage system and trying to build in some non-toxic components if they need that. You know, if they're not getting the performance that they need, uh, that's definitely possible. So this is, uh, I'm not going to show you data from this particular project, but this is a couple of slides from a long-term uh, project that we did with fescue grazing, uh, looking at either Max-Q, the, the non-toxic uh, friendly fescue, if you will, uh, whatever you want to call it, versus the toxic fescue. And so, uh, you know, these are, you see these pictures all the, all the time, but I guess just to show you that I, I can take pictures too of this crazy thing, but this heifer here is in a, a day in mid-June, very heat stressed, very muddy, typical fescue look. Uh, this heifer here is in the next pasture over, um, about a, at least about, about a half a body condition score higher, uh, very clean, very slick hair coat. Uh, neither of these cattle had any shade during this project, and we ran them in through, through the end of June. And this was very typical of what we saw. So, uh, you know, there's no question that the fescue thing is a, a major issue that we've got to deal with. In situations like this where producers really need some performance, they need heifers to grow and to reproduce, and, and most folks, again, do this with a feed bucket, and, and there's got to be a more 
uh, a better way for us to approach that in the long run. So to, to keep from talking on and on and on about that, because the fescue thing is such a major problem and such a big topic, I'm just going to use this slide to transition me to the next little piece of this talk. And just to tell you that we have got people's attention on this. This is a, one of our winter workshops. Um, but as we've started talking about these topics and, and having these hands-on workshops, we've had more and more folks coming. Uh, we've not had any trouble getting audiences early on in the, the educational process. We'd have you know eight or ten of these and be glad we did. Uh, Steve Woodruff was involved in a lot of those early ones. But we've, we've started to have good turnouts. We've had more and more people wanting to cooperate with us. And this peer-to-peer -peer teaching uh, that, uh, that, we, that we try to do uh, has really been beneficial. So folks, there, there's, a, there's a current out there of folks that really want to kill fescue, want to improve their system. Uh, we're working with them in a lot of different ways. But certainly uh, one of the most exciting ways right now is in, in doing active renovation projects where we're going out and working with people using annuals uh, to go through this transition. So basically our focus is to deal with toxic fescue and then add back to these systems either non-toxic fescue and or native warm season grasses. And those two uh, fit very well into what um, producers uh, need in terms of uh, balancing their system. When they sit down and do an overall system balance, they find they need warm season stuff uh, and they possibly need something that's going to give them better performance than toxic fescue. So some of the things that we have, have learned or have tried to point out to people as we go through this, number one is it takes time to do these conversions. And that's the, the reason that I really am stressing use of annuals. Because um, you know there's been a lot of situations where people get in a hurry. They want to get the toxic fescue killed. They want to get Max-Q planted. They try to do it all in one year. And uh, within uh, you know, three or four years, they've got a substantial amount of toxic fescue that's come back on. Now, that's not just producers. We, there's some research that shows that as well. And, uh, and so just a one season uh, of, of burning down that fescue is not necessarily going to get the job done. So um, we encourage people to take their time. Don't do too big of an acreage at one time because it does disrupt your system quite dramatically. And then use annuals there for several years so that you really can get the fescue gone or get the other, um, you know, the other weeds or the other things you're worried about for your native warm season grasses can be, can be cleaned up. So if we have that annual for several years, it's going to improve the, uh, our ability to kill this toxic fescue. It's going to break the weed cycles uh, that are out there on a lot of these older pastures uh, and, and try to kind of get that under, under control. It will also um, help us with soil health if we, if we can select the kind of annuals that will give us those kinds of benefits. Now, that's, a, that's, a big, that's an easy thing to say and a hard thing to do, and I know that you all deal with those kinds of questions all the time. But we have been working with these annuals now for the last three years. This is our third year. Uh, the first year started largely experimentally on my home farm because I just was scared to death about what was going to happen. And uh, being like a lot of our, our, our uh, clients that we work with, I'm, you know, I'm a part-time farmer, and, and approaching these kinds of projects uh, as a part-time venture is kind of scary, but I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about that as we go into it. But we are three years into this process. Now, we 
just a little bit of an aside, and I usually get a chuckle whenever I show this, but part of what's happened to our group and our program is we, we've started to work with Ray Archuleta, and uh, Ray has kind of taken me from being a conservative scientist that would never dream of planting something like this to being really excited about it. And, uh, and, and so that, I've been kind of through that little bit of a transformation because of Ray's input. But we started calling this mix, Ray's crazy mix. And, and I, you know, I don't know why we did that. I guess it was just for fun uh, to start with. And I think I did it just to dare Ray to come out to some of our workshops because I knew if we did that, he'd probably come to tell everybody he's not quite as crazy as we think. But, um, but anyway, one of our undergraduate students, Paige Kennedy, who's running this project this summer, uh, really has gotten along well with Ray, and she thinks it, could, it should be called Crazy Ray's Mix, but we're, we're keeping the name. The point being that people, you know, so there's a lot of psychology in this, and people will come to a workshop to see Ray's Crazy Mix that might not come to see annuals. So uh, just for what it's worth. So the big question comes up, how in the world do you design these mixtures? We're trying to do something that is based on science. There's really very little data out there, especially for a specific soil or a specific situation uh, from, from research that would help us to decide how to design the mixtures. I think we all can agree that there are different functional groups that we need to be thinking about. Uh, the grasses, um, obviously not all created equal, but they, most of them are fibrous root systems. The legumes, they can either be tapped and or fibrous or a little bit of both. They give us the nitrogen fixation benefit, of course. And then some of the forbs, the brassicas, uh, those can provide the taproot in some situations, but also are a good scavenger of nutrients. And you know, in situations where we have quite a bit of nutrients and have weed pressure potential, then oftentimes these brassicas can come out and quickly give us some, uh, some ground cover and maybe not compete so much with the upright grasses we're planting, but maybe compete with some of the weeds. So, those are, you know, that's about all we've got to go on at this point with, with our specific situation. Uh, but certainly we know that uh, at this point our thinking is that the success of the mix will be determined by uh, your initial plant population, and that's driven by the number of seeds you put in the ground, uh, pretty obviously, but uh, sometimes we don't think about that. The conditions specifically during establishment, uh, moisture, and fertility and all of that obviously has an effect and, and will affect a specific mixture. And then the competitiveness of the various species and the varieties of species that we get in those mixtures. So there's a lot to this that we don't know. And, and so again, my, my initial reaction to these kinds of mixtures was we shouldn't do this because we don't know anything about it. Uh, but based on some of the theoretical reasons why we would want mixtures uh, I'm, I'm in, you know, we're trying it. We're, we're trying to do some side-by-side -side plantings with stuff that's not these complicated mixtures where we're doing that, but uh, lots of farms are just planting just this, this um, raised crazy mix that we've come up with and, and our 2014 type. Now again, I, I'm, I'm going to try to have a little bit of data and, and uh, show you why I'm kind of really, you know, I, I keep having these little situations where I see somebody speak and I have an epiphany and realize that I've been missing out on uh, you know, uh, half a lifetime's worth of understanding. But this is a, a data slide from, uh, from Ray Weil in, in Maryland that uh, 
I saw him present at a, a Soil Health Field Day at Dave Brandt's this spring. And the two, the two green lines are two different types of, of radish cover crops. Um, again, uh, this, is a, a Mar this is a cropping situation in Maryland, so you know, put it in the perspective of where it's from. Uh, but this is the nitrogen level. So going here to your right is the amount of nitrogen in a 15 centimeter layer of soil uh, and, and at depth. And so what this shows is that in the control with no cover crop, uh, you basically have a lot of nitrogen here that's at that 60, uh, uh, you know, 75 to maybe 100 uh, centimeter of depth. Then there's less, and it goes down. And then there's another peak, another big amount out here uh, that's, that's deeper, and that's approximately six feet. And his interpretation, Ray's interpretation, is this is the fertilizer that's leached from two successive crop years. And by using the radishes, they have been able to scavenge that, that uh, nitrogen from down that deep and pull a lot of it back up to the surface. So the total amount of nitrogen in this soil uh, was 173 kilograms per hectare with no cover and only around 50 to 60 with the two types of radishes. Now, where is that nitrogen? Well, it's up here on top in this scavenged crop. And again, we, we you know, this is pretty well understood, but again, for me, uh, was, was pretty, pretty neat. And uh, Ray made the point at uh, this particular talk that he thinks there's roots below this, le this level. This is as deep as they could go. But the deeper they look for roots, the deeper they find roots. And Steve challenged me here uh, uh, a week or so ago. We had a workshop, and one of my grad students stated that this radish could go down 12 feet. And I think she'd heard me say that. And so, uh, so I had to uh, go and do a little digging and actually went back to Ray Weil. And he said he had data down to 8 feet, uh, that he had the radish root there, uh, but that he felt like there was no reason it couldn't go to 12 if the soil was... Uh, was of, of such a nature that it could be penetrated. So this deep, this deep rooting, taproot stuff is very interesting to me, especially in these, in these very poor Piedmont soils that, that uh, we know are hard as a rock. And, and again, the question earlier about, um, you know, about what we might do about compaction uh, is, is a really good one. And on these clay-type soils, they're, they're, they're hard as a rock all the way down. You know, there are some compaction layers, obviously, from former plowing activity and stuff, but they're, they're, just, they're just plain old hard. So getting some living roots deep in those soils uh, is going to be a challenge. I'm sure that, uh, uh, you know, I don't think we'll have the depths that we have, certainly, in this type of a soil. Now, going on to some of the, the planning considerations, and the, after this I'm going to show you what the mixes were for the three years. But uh, this year, this is this year's mix. And uh, it's, it's roughly based on uh, some mixes that were being used in the upper Midwest, but we have some grazing corn, uh, some soybeans, some cowpeas, two types of sorghum Sudan, uh, a pearl millet, um, a sunflower, um, a hybrid brassica that is the T-Raptor hybrid brassica, and then, the, and then the daikon radish. And the seeding rates are here on the side. And you know, I, I guess I knew this all along, but what we need to be doing is looking at our plant populations. Uh, and I, it's easiest for me to think in terms of per square foot. So I'm going to jump over here so we don't take up too much time. But if you look at seeds per pound, um, 
we, we can determine that, and these are actually determined on the pure seeds that we use this year, ranging from anywhere from 1,800 for the corn up to 113,000 for the brassica. And so if you, you know, if you see that range, that nearly 100-fold range in, uh, in that, uh, obviously that's going to that's gonna drive a lot of what's in there. And so it should be no surprise uh, when we get over here to, uh, to the uh, you know, seeds per square foot that we have very, very little corn, and we have an awful lot of these brassicas and, and millet, the two smallest seeds. And that was really not I, – I, we knew that, but it's easy to get carried away with that and, and up that component just a little bit and affect that plant population a lot. Don't know if that's a problem, but again, I just think that as we, as we think about these seeds, we really need to be looking more at, at what we have out there. Uh, you know, the total plant population here – that was put out in seed is eight, about 18 plants per square foot, uh, lower than what we sometimes say we want for these mixtures. But some of these are pretty big plants. So, uh, you know, a couple of a couple of uh, sorghum Sudan plants per square foot and a couple of millets is quite a, actually quite a bit. So, um, again, work in progress. But this is where we are at right now and, and how we've designed the the mix that we're using this year. And and this is the this is basically the three years that we've used and. And again, I'm I'm combining varieties and everything here. I'm not. I'm just showing the the um, the species that we use. But you can see that this has evolved some over the years. And uh, I'll show you some pictures of that in a minute of why that might be. But we started with this mix that we bought from uh, from uh, uh, Nebraska, and then we designed this 2013 mix ourselves and mixed it here. And then, as well as 2014, this was custom mixed for us. So. We're evolving through this and trying to see what, uh, you know, how, how try, try to do it logically and then see what it looks like. So this was the first year. We had more sunflowers the first year, so it was probably our prettiest year. Uh, had a lot of brassicas, good diversity. Um, this is from one of our producer's farms. And, and the perception was we had an awful lot of brassica. We didn't really have as much yield as we'd like, and so we wanted more of the, of the grasses. This was a very dry year, uh, and so we didn't really know how that affected us. So... Um, we also had some side-by-side -side, uh, sorghum Sudan that year, as well as some of the mixes. And uh, you know, sorghum Sudan is a good uh, is a good uh, annual crop, so we want to, uh, you know, we don't want to forget about that. And and this particular one uh, shows some cows grazing some some stuff that had pretty much got away from us, and uh, the 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 polywire there we're using to graze that land with. Uh, also, you know, a lot of interest here in cow peas and sorghum Sudan, some of these simpler mixtures. We did have some of that side by side the first year to get some experience with it. Uh, and, uh, you know, it looks, looks quite good. The, they seem to have a good relationship when you get a good cow pea stand and they start climbing up that, that sorghum Sudan as it gets bigger. Nevertheless, you know, a lot, of, a lot of curiosity and interest in the stuff like the radishes and the other stuff in those diverse mixtures. And so, We've, we've tried to keep, uh, keep that out there. It's as much an attention getter as anything, but if we can get people on the land looking, uh, doing, uh, you know, trying to do something with their fescue, if this is what it takes, I'm all for it. Now, jump to 2013, this being the second year. And uh, this is on our farm. This is the mixture. And uh, the second year, we increased sorghum Sudan a little bit in the mix. We also had about eight inches of rain during the first three weeks after establishment. And, you know, what we learned is that sorghum Sudan grows like mad when it rains a lot. This is a fescue pasture that was killed, and, 
And uh, this is with no nitrogen. There was about five tons of bio biomass out there, uh, and that biomass was about 80% sorghum Sudan. And so uh, plan as you will, these mixtures will respond to the environmental conditions. And we had almost no legumes in this mixture, even though we planted soybeans and cowpeas. You could find a, a little one there, here and there, but we, uh, you know, we just didn't, didn't get a lot of them because of the competition. Now, folks say this is just all, you know, you'd think this is awful from a traditional grazing management standpoint, but again, the goal in here is to kill fescue. And so if this is a fescue renovation project and this is the goal, um, I, you know, I, this is not near as bad as if we're trying to get good performance on the cattle. So this particular situation, uh, yearling cattle gained about 1.3 pounds per day uh, grazing through this kind of big mass. And uh, you can see how this was done with, uh, with temporary fencing. The foreground here being an area that was grazed. And you see when it's big like this, they pretty well stomp it all down. Uh, we did uh, do a few little estimates, not something that would be scientifically publishable, but we did some estimates here that looks like they're probably stomping down two-thirds of the biomass out there uh, and doing a lot of ground cover. So again, if I'm trying to kill fescue and improve soil at the same time, this is a pretty darn good approach. So we need to be a little more open-minded about uh, whether farmers are doing the right thing or not as they do this. Now, this is a, a, one of our main cooperators, Johnny Rogers, and um, he's, uh, he's been around. Many of you know him already, but Johnny's a little more uh, performance conscious than I am. He's, uh, he's, he's a purebred, uh, got some purebred cattle and that sort of thing. So this is his red Angus heifers, and he was able to get about 1.7 pounds per day on these heifers on that mix. Uh, grazing at about the size of what you see there. So he was, uh, his wasn't quite as far away from him as mine was because uh, our land just seemed to have a little bit more nitrogen to it than his did. Again, this is unfertilized stuff. But a uh, little better mix, a little better diversity, but again, a lot of sorghum Sudan at his place. So we learned that when it rains a lot, you want less sorghum Sudan. I wish we could predict that, but that's kind of the case. You see, we backed off our sorghum Sudan a little bit in this year's mixes, and we'll find out how that works. Um, the next one. Uh, you know, one thing Johnny pulled this one up, and really he, he's, he, he had some cow peas and sorghum Sudan as well, and, and really we're, we're debating this. You know, do you want to put in a system where you're going to have lots of legume in it? Is that what you need? And if so, uh, we, need to be, we need to be thinking about that in these mixtures. And, and, and that, those are not easy decisions to make. Um, the overall sort of observation from last summer is that, that uh, we had very good luck with all of our, with all of our systems, uh, very, very good luck in terms of, uh, of us being able to um, have cattle perform well, be comfortable, uh, be in these situations where folks were not used to them on these higher quality forages in the summer, body conditions great in these animals, and again, a very lot of interest uh, in in terms of trying to uh, to do this uh, this this particular approach. Now, some of the things that I, I'll, I'll give you as recommendations, just kind of what we've learned, and again, many of you know more about this than I do, but um, I think it's important for producers to know their goal. I get this question all the time: When do we start grazing this stuff? And I think if you want quality forage production, you want animal performance, you need to graze it earlier and graze it more traditionally like we would, uh, you know, four to six week regrowth at the very most and then rotational grazing. 
but if you're looking for a uh, conversion project, you want a lot of biomass, you want a lot of cover left, uh, then uh, you know maybe letting it get a little bigger before you graze it is a good idea. So we need to work out some uh, some work to really test that uh, that approach and see if that's true or not. I think that that's got some good sense in it. I think we also want to plant into a non-competitive situation. I'll show you, show you a, a picture here in a minute about that, but there are a lot of weeds that will compete uh, with, uh, with the plants for moisture. There are a lot of, um, you know, there are a lot of situations where you can have some perennial plants out there that are, that uh, if the weather turns dry, that you'll have, uh, you'll have your problems with that. So, uh, we, we get a lot of debate about whether we burn this down with Roundup or something before planting. And so you really need to think about your situation. But if you're in a situation where you want to kill fescue, then I would kill it. I mean, I think that, that saying, well, we, we really don't want to use Roundup. Uh, we live with a little bit of fescue. I don't think that's good advice. I think getting the fescue out of the system, if that's your goal, is really important. Uh, just, you know, based on what we've seen so far, we seem to see better results where we have used a burn down. Uh, typically with glyphosate for our farmers, uh, but we do have some successes where they have not done the burn down. So uh, again, no no absolutes here, but uh, most situations we would recommend that that the stand be uh, you know be be done in and the annuals be used then to uh, to to restart the system. Just a few little pictures here to show you at the end. This is a uh, an example of kind of what I'm talking about. This is a mix that was. Uh, in our, this is our winter mix on that same land where I showed the sorghum Sudan earlier. Uh, and again, uh, you know, we planted an eight-way mixture. Most of this is going to be pea and, and vetch, uh, oats and wheat, a little bit of ryegrass and crimson clover because they, uh, those are the ones that didn't winter kill. Some of the other stuff winter killed. But nevertheless, this was a very thin stand, uh, big, uh, in my mind, come the 1st of April, I, it was just a disaster. It was the biggest problem I've ever been involved in in terms of trying something so hard and having to turn out so bad. Uh, this is this picture was taken towards the end of April, and a little bit of rain, a little bit of warm weather, and uh, these annuals can really come on and do a lot. And so this was a, a steer grazing that we got. Uh, I did weigh these cattle out of this when they were done with that, and these animals gained right at about two and a half pounds a day, uh, and and did quite well on it. And we got a lot of grazing out of it. And if we had been um, doing our traditional approach and getting this ready to be planted by the middle of April, we, or first of May or so with these other summer annuals, we would have missed out on a lot of this uh, biomass and this nitrogen that we brought into the system. So we've got to be really careful about how we approach managing these and, and, we, and understand we have a lot to learn about it. We, we can't make absolute statements about this. And, and in this case, I think it was the right thing to, uh, to, to graze this late assuming that it rains because we're way behind on our summer annual now, uh, but we're not that far behind because nobody else has had much rain. The other thing, the last thing I'm going to throw in here about our, uh, our current summer this year, we, we do have uh, about 20 locations where we have planted the raised crazy mix this summer. Uh, six of those locations we're monitoring pretty carefully uh, as a part of a grant from USDA. And this is two of those locations. Uh, somebody I'll point out, the, the, uh, the young lady here in the pink shirt is uh, Paige Kennedy. She's the, uh, she's the graduate student that's, that's, that's working uh, on this this summer, and then we're not sure what she's going to do for her grad project. Uh, but this is a site in Union County. This is the farmer right here. 
uh, and this is a site in Stanley County. Um, this particular site, that's Nathan Louder right there. This, this shows the kind of team we're trying to work with. Uh, this is uh, Amy Poirier, who's the uh, agronomist with the Department of Agriculture. This is Steve Lemons, our extension agent. Nathan with NRCS. Uh, this guy here behind Paige, I can't remember his name, but he's an intern with Nathan, Paige, and then this is Elaine Moore, the farmer. So we're working as a team here. We're assessing what's out there. And Elaine drilled hers into a stand of triticale uh, that she grazed uh, pretty hard. She didn't want to kill it because she thought she might get a little more out of it. It's also got a little bit of fescue and other stuff in there she didn't want to kill. So she elected not to, not to burn it down and just to drill directly into it and to do it early because she knew that annuals, she needed to be early. So that was the first one planted. This site was planted later. Uh, the farmer burnt down after taking off um, a ryegrass hay crop, uh, planted it in there, and then he decided he wanted, to, he wanted to do a little nitrogen on his, so he came back and he put some nitrogen on, about 40 units, um, uh, after this stuff had emerged. And he's, he's got a really good mixture, again, dominated by sorghum sudan, uh, which is being fed by that nitrogen, but he's gonna, he wants performance, so he's going to graze this off and and hopefully the other stuff will come back in the second grazing. Elaine's, uh, at her farm, it's mostly uh, triticale, weeds, um, other junk out there that it would have been really nice to have cleaned that up. So in retrospect, you know, this site, probably the burn down would have been worth it uh, to allow the mixture to get off to a good start. Uh, you can kind of see it in here, and we are collecting data on what the stand looks like, but uh, well over 50% of this stand uh, was the stuff that uh, you know that we, we, we that we sowed. So under 50% was sown uh, on this site. About 75% of what was out there was what we planted. And then there's some some broadleaf signal grasses, the main species coming in uh, in combination with what we planted. So uh, again, we're going to get experience with a bunch of different sites with this particular mix. But I think it shows you that it really depends on the site and the the, the farmers as to how this this stuff is going to work out. So I'll end, and, and, and Steve, I, it's been a real pleasure. I think we're right at an hour. Sorry, I went a little over what I'd planned, but uh, I just want to leave you with one thought. And this is everywhere we've gone and, and worked with farmers and tried to find out what it is that's limiting them from adopting better grazing management. It really becomes, uh, it really becomes fencing. We have a need to get folks to learn more about temporary fencing. Uh, we have... Uh, these workshops that we have uh, uh, this last couple summers have focused on this, and, and that's what we're going to be focusing on this summer. But getting this stuff into people's hands, getting them out, and realizing that, uh, like shown here with Johnny Rogers, that uh, you know this is a good, this is honorable work. This is good exercise. This is the, this is you know get you on the ground with your cattle. Uh, it's so different from managing them from the cab of a pickup truck, and. And people like it if they just get out and start doing it. And so we're, we're not going to stop on this. We're going to keep pushing, keep showing examples, keep expanding our, our group of cooperators and trying to get people to, uh, to, to, to realize that there is something uh, to be found here and there is some good in, in land that we formerly thought was just poor quality land. Okay, with that, Steve, I'm going to stop and I'll take some more questions. Well, Matt, I'm sure to appreciate it. that was a really good presentation. We'll take about 
see if we can take about five or six or seven minutes or so and 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 get at a few of these questions as as many as we can knock out. Uh, one that came in, you know, you've talked a, a lot about converting from toxic fescue and using annuals to do that. What about when you have uh, pastures that are in pretty good shape, uh, but you were thinking about uh, annuals uh, in the system? Uh, that can be, you know, what, what's your thought process on that when to consider using annuals when maybe it's not a toxic fescue situation? Okay, I think that's a good, that's a really good question, Steve. And, and the thing about annuals is annuals have a few characteristics in grazing that are important. One is that, uh, that and, and again, if I focus right now on the time of year it is here, thinking about summer annuals, they do have the potential to help balance the system from a warm season, cool season standpoint. And uh, something like a sorghum sudan can give you a lot of yield during the summer. Um, obviously, you know, warm season perennials would be a benefit to that, but something that it takes a lot more time, a lot more management to, to get to that. So, so again, I, we, we are normally thinking in terms of conversion, but if you're not, if, if you're, uh, if it's not a toxic fescue situation, but just a, a farm plan uh, that maybe says you need more warm season or more cool season or whatever it is, then some of these annuals are, are a way of getting there. And, and so another example would be a situation where it's all Bermuda grass. And, uh, you know, what do you do? How do you control Bermuda grass enough to get something else planted if it's been there for a long time? And so, again, an annual to kind of break up that Bermuda grass, something that would be competitive with it to get it out of the system so that you can put what you really want would be, uh, you know, would probably be a better, uh, a better approach that you could use. The other, the other thing is just the overall performance of animals. Um, the annuals typically will give you a little bit better performance than most of the perennial species, uh, and so we we can we can capitalize on that in situations where producers have a high need for uh, for nutrition for the animals. Where we have that here is is people that are are trying to, uh, for example, they're trying to grass finish beef on their farm. They may have perfectly good um, perennial pastures that have served them well for their cow herd, but they just can't get animals finished. And so they may put in a little niche part of their system to try to, to, try to get the performance on those animals. And so that's, that's the main place where they would be used. And that's typically the people that are interested in working with us on this are people that have realized they need to change, mostly because of the performance of their cattle. And uh, a few of those, uh, you know, they go into it thinking I'm going to do a conversion, and then they go into it and realize, man, there's a room for annuals in my system. Again, the, the, one, the one caveat on that is if you do uh, a winter and summer annual um, double crop, essentially, you're always behind, you're always late, um, it takes good farming skills. There's all sorts of things about it there that, that maybe, you know, make it something that, that, you know, annuals just as a part of the system is not going to work for a lot of our producers that that just don't they just don't farm uh, regularly and so they're always struggling trying to make it work. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Uh, and you, you hit on this a little bit when you talked about the time to convert from uh, toxic fescue to other uses. Um, but how how many years do you think you need uh, to put these annuals in 
when converting, and maybe not necessarily just for the toxic fescue, but just for any reason. You know, some somebody like yourself could be using these annuals on a pasture, and you say, "Boy, I really enjoy this." Uh, so you just keep doing it over and over again in the same in the same pasture, and I'm sure economics comes into play at some point as well. Yes, absolutely. So that's now I didn't mention the economics part, but the you know we. I mean, you all have seen it as well. They're, they're, the annuals are the most expensive thing we can put in. Uh, the seed cost was around $70 an acre this year, and we could have planted a straight sorghum Sudan for about half that. But, uh, you know, and then our perennial pastures are going to be much below that in terms of the overall cost. But, again, uh, you know, so it, it's, there's so many factors that are stacked on top of each other here, it's hard for me to, to sort it out. But again, if we're going into an old pasture and we're thinking, okay, we want to renovate it, we have this compaction issue probably from lots of animals, and, and these are usually not the best managed pastures maybe. Maybe some of them are. But I think we have the opportunity to go in there and get some benefits from the deep-rooting deep crops, especially the radish, the, you know, the, the deep tap roots. And, and sorghum Sudan is a very, you know, it's a very aggressive root, very deep-rooted kind of a crop. And I think that can help to set up a better soil health situation as we go back into establishing the perennial crops behind that. And again, that's just my gut feeling. I wish I had more data on that, uh, and we probably can scrounge some data that's somewhat related to that. But again, we need some practical research on this stuff that's going to give us some idea of, uh, for example, is there any benefit to that radish uh, for a few years as you as you bridge between uh, you know a toxic fescue and a non-toxic fescue crop, or if you're just renovating a pasture that's that's kind of gone downhill and just obviously not as productive as it once was, um, this these kinds of things kind of have me a little bit interested in in you know going into some pastures that we would normally just leave alone because they're pretty good, but thinking about the benefits we might get beyond just the forage production that we would get. Okay, and so uh, you'd hit on. You'd also talked a little about uh, establishment, and you said that you used uh, a, a chemical burn down. What other site prep? And I know that Johnny had just, you know, just did not do that. Johnny Rogers, uh, uh, he just he just no till directly into the grazed down pastures. Was there any other any other site prep uh, for either one of you guys? Did you well, did? um. Uh, Basically, no. Uh, the the and at our our place again. I'm 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 at war with fescue on the pastures we're doing. So I'm I'm really wanting to kill all that off. Johnny is on leased land, and you know he doesn't know for sure how long he's going to be there. He's not quite as as worried about long term eliminating fescue from the pastures he's working with. But he's um, he did burn down with fescue the first uh, the fescue with with glyphosate the first year. And then after that, he's continued with annuals on that land and has not has not used any herbicides. Um, again, I, I think it'll be interesting to see this year what happened because he did, uh, you know, we have had a lot of dry weather and, and some of the stands are really struggling to survive. And in this kind of situation, then any of those living plants, even right now vetch and other stuff like that's holding on using the moisture. And, uh, and and competing with those summer annual plants that are trying to get going. So, I, you know, a lot of a lot of debate and discussion there, Steve. I think you've got to ask yourself how much competition are you going to have, 
And uh, that can be done through scouting. You know, if you go out, I know that the cropping system guys do the same thing. You know, they roll down and, um, you know, it, that usually gets a good kill on the vetch and, and, um, uh, and rye or whatever it is that they're cover cropping with. But if they don't, you know, if they don't get a good kill, they'll go back and they'll spray that because of that competition issue. So, uh, you know, I, there, there's a lot of art in this. And um, I basically, the, the thought process I go through is I go out there and I walk and I look for undesirable stuff um, first, you know, stuff that I really would like to kill. Uh, and then think about the competition as a second, you know, from desirable plants as a secondary thing. And uh, uh, we'll try to finish up with this one more. Uh, what percentage of your grazing system? I guess it depends on what kind of what if it's a cow calf or stock or replacements. What what percentage do you think you maybe should keep in annuals throughout a season? Okay. Well, again, I don't. I don't necessarily. This is really not to say that we think that everybody ought to have annuals in their system. I, I think that that would be the wrong message. Mm. Um, what we're, and that's why we really are stressing the conversion thing because, again, annual, uh, last winter was a good example of the worst that can happen with annuals. I mean, we just, if you got it planted real early, you got something. If you were planting late after summer annuals and that sort of thing in October, like a lot of people did, you just didn't get any production on that winter annual all through the winter. And I think I relayed to you that we did have some erosion and stuff off the land that we have. Um, even though we had a lot of sorghum Sudan cover out there, a lot of a lot of cover on the soil, we had some major rain events in the winter that caused some erosion. So um, I'm you know I'm not a big fan still of the annuals as a major part of anybody's system. I think here our, our finishers uh, that are trying to have some really high quality stuff to finish cattle on, um, they may want you know 10 or 20 percent of their of their acreage, and this is if they're a cow calf producer. Um, but they need they need a substantial amount of acreage in something other than uh, toxic fescue or Bermuda grass. So they do need some you know some non-toxic fescue, some native warm season, or something like that. And then a little bit of annuals to kind of transition through and maybe take advantage of some quick yields after rain. Uh, you know I think there's some benefit there uh, to that, but it's got to be for specialty uses. Okay. Uh, I've tried to combine a lot of these questions, as many as I could, and we still ended up with a lot more. Uh, okay. uh, but, but what we can do, if you have some that you felt like you really needed to answer, you, you could shoot me an email and I could forward those on to Matt and maybe he could help us answer those. But I did combine most of the ones together. Uh, we need to wrap up. I did want to make one quick point, and thank you, Matt, uh, for, for doing a great presentation. As always, you do a great job. Uh, I did also want to point out, most of you know that Matt uh, heads up the Pastureland Ecology course, the NEDS course, the two-week course, which is taught at North Carolina State University, uh, and that that course is always well-received uh, as a great course. We It's coming up, uh, coming up in early July. We actually have a few spots left open. If you know anyone in your states that would be interested in that, please um you can uh, let Ned's know or let me know, and I can pass that on as well. Um, but with that, thank you, Matt, and thanks to everyone for being here today, and uh, we'll see you next time.